2 and a couple of verses. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, last weekend, Julie had really got me on the clock. And, uh, and I go on the podcast, Julie. I think the 15-minute message was 15 minutes and 14 seconds. So that was pretty good. And the 20-minute message was 22 minutes and 8 seconds. So I think I was pretty good. And uh, so it might just be a tad more than 30 minutes this morning, but not too long. Um, but there's a lot to say and a lot to pack in. And I just trust that you'll stay with me. If I can say this carefully and with humility, it's an important message to lay into the life of the church this morning. And um, we just trust that our heart will be able to capture what God wants to say. So Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, verse 21. In him, Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. I use those verses because they'll become pretty apparent in a moment as to why. This is the launch of our new uh, spring series, which is called Thieves and Occupants. And um, thankfully, we're only going to spend one week on the thieves, which is my task this morning, and then we're going to move on to the occupants. But here's the problem. There are lots of churches talking about what they want the church to be filled with, And they've not dealt with what shouldn't be in the church. And if you don't deal with what shouldn't be in the church, what you want in the church is not going to happen. So Ephesians is an incredible book. It really is that classic book of two halves. You've heard about the game of two halves. Well, this is the book of two halves. Chapters 1 to 3 talk about what God has done in us. It's rich in theological content. It digs deep in terms of God's hand upon us, how that we've been saved by grace, how that we're his mystery, his revealed secret, mysterious, how he's come to us and shown himself to us. And then when we get to chapter 4, it goes to another gear of basically saying that we're to walk worthy of this calling that we've received. How do we work that out in our lives? And Ephesians is a classic letter not only to the church then, but to the church now, on how the church works. And there are three big pictures that come out of the church, and we're going to think about one this morning. But firstly, it talks about the church being a body. At the end of chapter 1, he says, And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Have you ever realized, friends, that the church is the fullness of him? That's how important our calling is. It's the fullness of him on the earth, a body. And we could spend a lot of time there this morning, and we've had messages in the past about we being the body of Christ. Everybody's got a part to play. The Bible says that even the parts of the body that seem uh, sort of to be easily dispensable are the ones that we need. Then in chapter 5, it talks about the church being a bride. And it says in those verses that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, 40 years ago this May, I I met Sharon, and 36 years this July, she became my bride. We're still going. It's a long time, isn't it? 30, yeah. And, uh, but on that day, she prepared herself, and and, uh, Miriam put a, 
a picture on, uh, on Instagram yesterday of Sharon and me just after we got married in the car. I had hair, which was incredible. And, uh, you know, and, and she looked radiant and glorious because she was the bride. And that's the heart of God for us. He loves the bride. When we have preachers, friends, getting up, trashing the church, do you think that carries the heart of God? No way. He loves the church. It's his bride. He loves it so much that he gave himself for it. But the third picture, which I want just to dwell on for a moment or two this morning, is found here in these verses that we read at the end of Ephesians 2. Not only a body, not only a bride, but we're also a building. A building. And the gathered people of God, when they are indwelt by his spirit, as we've experienced in the first part of the meeting this morning, become the building of God. They become the gathered force of God in the earth. I mentioned over Easter that when we define the church by grandeur, big buildings, churchy type buildings, as good as those things are, and I've walked around York and Durham and Canterbury and Chester and all those places and enjoy it, but that doesn't define what God is really on about. And here in Ephesians 2, he says that the dividing wall of petition has come down. There's no ethnicity in the church anymore that says, oh, you're in and you're out. You're white, but you've got a different colored skin, so you can't be in. It's all broken down. We all become one, a holy temple as unto the Lord. You see, in the Old Testament, where God painted lots of pictures and shadows that pointed us towards the cross, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. At one time, it was portable. It was a tabernacle. When the cloud moved, the tent moved. When the cloud stayed, the tent stayed. Imagine the inconvenience of that. Imagine going on holiday on Saturday, and you've done all your cases, and you've had all your arguments, and then Sunday, you're off again. You know, I mean, the good thing about unpacking the cases is at least you think you've got 7, 10, 14 days to enjoy it. But imagine the following day, all oh, the clouds going, we've got to go again. <laughs> to follow the presence is inconvenient at times. It's inconvenient. People want the presence without any price. It doesn't work. So in the altar, and then of course there's David's tabernacle. Again, a portable building that restored the presence of God to Mount Zion, that revealed that God was at work again. And then, of course, God says to David, you're not building the real temple, your son is. And then that got knocked down, and then people went back, and they got taken up with their own things, and Haggai came along. The temple in the Old Testament was very, very significant. It was a gathering point, but it was all demolished at the cross. It was all demolished at the cross. So in the New Testament... Through the cross, God has a people for his temple. The temples of the Old Testament painted pictures and shadows of the reality that we find ourselves in now in the church. And you may be a guest to the church this morning and say, well, this isn't a proper church. You know, I mean, you know, it's not a proper, well, it is a proper church. Because this morning, people have come together and God has indwelt us by his spirit. Come to Mansfield tonight, that's even not more a proper church than Arena Ilkeston is a proper church. It's be a snooker club. But people come together tonight and worship the Lord. The presence of God comes. I'll tell you what, God's chuckling in heaven. He loves all this. When people are saying it's not a church, he's saying, I believe it is. I believe it's a church. 
And so we thank God for all of that. And Jacob in the Old Testament had an intimate confrontation with God and he got a revelation of the church. And he said these words, he says, how awesome is this place? Call it Bethel, the house of God. How awesome is this place? It is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. And what happens, friends, is that we allow the enemy to demean what the church is meant to be in the earth. Because what the church is meant to be in the earth is the gateway for heaven to touch earth. And when heaven touches earth, things change. People get healed. People get saved. People get restored. People see that God is light and love and life and draws them to himself. And he said, how awesome is this place? Not awful, awesome. Filled with awe. Filled with the life of God. And I want to say again, friends, without apology this morning, that Arena Church, in its leadership, in its culture, in its committed people, are committed to being an awesome church. But it doesn't happen without intentionality. Let me just remind you of a few things. If you're going to build a great building, you've got to have a great foundation. Our foundation is Jesus Christ. You've got to have the builder, the right builder in place. One of our national leadership team is building a three million pound new build at the moment. And the Monday before he preached at our area conference, the builder went bust. They've had to get another one in. And the roof was going on on Friday, by the way, which is fantastic. And that church is going to prevail because it's a prevailing church. The right builder, the right foundation, the right walls knitted together. The right windows, where the word of God has entrance. The right door, which is always open, not shut. Where Jesus in Revelation 3, not a gospel verse. A verse to the church knocking on the door saying, will you let me back in? Too many churches have barred Jesus from the church. He can't get in. And the right roof, a roof of security, but also a roof that's open. Like that Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. It comes, it goes. It shuts for security. It opens up for intervenes. And so we could go on. And as we go in those things, we begin to see that God begins to shape the furniture of the house. Your furniture in your house is different to the furniture in my house. And sometimes it sort of reflects your journey. Sometimes it reflects your age. Younger people tend to be into minimalists, don't they? Where is the furniture? You know. Where do we sit down? You know. If you've been to our Alison and Ryan's, you know what we're talking about. The culture, the atmosphere. If you don't believe your house hasn't got a culture or an atmosphere, you're dreaming. It's either a culture for good or a culture for bad, but whatever way, you're allowing it. And so we are in this house. And we begin to see, friends, that God brings shape to the house. You see, there are too many churches that are just a pile of bricks. I know Damien Hurst got an award for it, and I still don't get it. You know, this pile of bricks, and, you know, he was sculptor of the year or whatever. Don't get it. But God has not intended us to be a pile of bricks in the path and saying, oh, isn't that great? Isn't that a great church? God has given an intentional blueprint and plan for how the church works. And if I can say it, friends, this is where we need to land it. He's given that plan to outwork through his governmental gifts that are found in Ephesians 4.11. Apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. 
In other words, God could drop down from heaven with an angelic force and sort it all out. But he says, no, what I've done is I love to work with humanity. Humanity drives me nuts at times. Leaders get it wrong. The church gets it wrong. But I am committed in my redeemed purpose to work with people. So I've given gifts to the church that help the church to have the blueprint implemented for them. And if I can be careful in saying this as well, friends, that's why we need to, if we recognize that we've got gifts to the church, be thankful for them. The gifts in the church, friends, are not to be derided and belittled. They're to be honored because God's given them to the church and the church will never make progress without the gifts. If I can say this again, there's lots of good churches around led by good people, but not by gift people. They're going nowhere. How are you going to take on the gifts, the powers of darkness just by good people? that aren't gifted. How are we going to break through? How are we going to see advancement? How are we going to see churches planted? We need gift people to lead the church. Give people that understand the blueprint that God has brought to him that drive that down to specific contexts and situations and the church no longer becomes a pile of bricks but a beautiful temple that God can inhabit by his spirit. So thieves... Think about your house for a minute. You might have bought your house. It's paid for. You might be buying your house. And all of a sudden you thought about how much that mortgage is. You might be renting your house. You might be leasing it. It might be a great big massive house. It might be a small house. We live in a small house. It doesn't matter. It's your home. It's your home. And what is your home? Well, it's a place of refuge, place of safety place of blessing, place where you can kick your shoes off and be you. It's a place, friends, that is amazing, a real home. And imagine that home for a moment, be a house, a flat, a bungalow, whatever it is, coming under threat. Let me, let me give you these words for a moment and think about it in terms of the attack on your home. Gate crashes. Won't be the first parents that have gone away for the weekend and says to their 17-year-old son, you know, be good while we're away. And the 17-year-old son's put on Facebook that his mum and dad are away for the weekend. And all of a sudden, he's got 300 gate crashes for a party. Yeah, interesting conversation on Sunday night when they get home, you know. What about squatters? People that squat in something illegally and very difficult to move out. What about burglars and robbers coming to your house? Oh, Horrible. And we've had people in our church that sadly have had to sometimes go through the experience of being burgled. And it's always traumatic. It's always emotionally painful. Somebody has come into your house that shouldn't be there. A thief. As in the natural, so in the spiritual. And there are churches around, friends, that are allowing themselves to be robbed and stolen of by the enemy who seeks to frustrate every course of the church And some of them know it and don't do anything about it. And some don't even get it. And they're praying for revival. And it's not coming anytime soon. We've got to be intentional about positioning ourselves for the building of what God has ordained to take place so that he can bring about his purpose and his plan. And so I want you to just think about that this morning. And I want you to realize that we need to be alert against anything that robs us as a church of God's best intention over our lives. And now I'm talking specifically about Arena and the community of believers 
that we belong to. And very briefly this morning, I'm going to highlight four thieves to you. Four intruders, burglars, gate crashers, squatters. And I want to do this positively. And I think the way that I can communicate it positively is to realize that I believe it's a revelation to my heart in the sense that these four things continually resisted Jesus' lives in the Gospels. And if these four things came against Jesus on a regular and continual basis, we shouldn't be surprised that they also come against his bride, his church, his body, that, to, that seeks to impair us and make us dysfunctional and robs us of what God has called us to be. And again, if I can say it with humility this morning, I believe there is an amazing ordained, heaven-sent purpose and destiny that sits over this church for such a time as this. There are gifts that sit in the seats this morning that are yet to emerge and arise of significance. There are people that are yet to be sent into another nation's from Arena Church. There are miracles that are yet to take place. There are churches that still haven't been planted. And you think the enemy just sits back and says, tell you what, I'll let that Christian bloke just get on with it all. Give him a, give him a free ride. Just let him do what he wants. It's resistant. A Christian, that even in the last few weeks, that's been part of the, the thing. A resistance to your destiny. A resistance to your destiny. That's why we need to pray for you. And that you'll keep pressing through into what God has ordained you to be. So here's the first one, religion. Because John 10.10 10 says that thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I'm glad that's not the end of the verse. Jesus says, I'm come that you might have life and have it in all of its fullness. And the real sense of that meaning is that we have a taste of eternity now. We have a taste of heaven on earth. But there's a thief that comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he'll rob, he'll thieve, he'll take from us if we let him. Number one, religion. I'm going to give you some Bible references, but I'm not going to read them this morning. But if you read Luke chapter 5, verse 27, and go through into chapter 6 and verse 11, here's just one example of the religious spirit coming against Jesus. Because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. We think everybody was be glad. But lots of people were mad. It says in the New International Version, they were furious. Peterson describes it as people were beside themselves with anger. But Jesus, that's what religion does for you. You may sat in, sit in your work canteen this week or the office. Somebody says, you know what? The problem with this world is religion. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Arena Church isn't into religion no time for it he's a thief he's a thief we are into relationship with God through the loving Jesus Christ who by the power of his spirit has saved us forever and that is what we are into religion says do relationship says done religion is a system of faith that presses down that, that, that subverts that demeans people we're not into any of that the Bible says if you know the son uh, the, the Son will set you free. You're empowered to be all that God has intended you to be. And we have people in our church that have come to faith and they've had to extricate themselves from a journey of religion. And God's done an amazing work in their lives. 
by the way, religion's not just found in the formal denominations. It's found in some of the so-called free churches. When we impose upon people something that God has not, it becomes religion. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, Matthew 24, Jesus reserved his most severe words always for religion. We don't have time to read it this morning, but you can read there that religion is burdensome, proud, external. It protects, is protective of the status quo, not protective of status quo. I know some of you want to do that as well, but, 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 but of the status quo. It's powerless, it's critical, it's joyless, it's stubborn. You can read it all there. Religion complains and compares. I, read a, I heard a preacher years ago and I wrote his quote down. It came to me again this week. Religion seeks to pounce. Tries to catch people out. <clears throat> we sometimes have people want to pounce on our kids when they're growing up. Because guess what? They weren't perfect. Well, they're the pastor's kids. No, they're my kids. They're not your kids. They, they just happen to, the dad just happens to be a pastor, you know. Ready to pounce. As though they were different from other kids. They were pretty good kids, but they weren't perfect. The religious spirit that, that's always trying to sort of catch you out. <clears throat> it runs to so-called higher values of holiness. And completely misses the point. You see, when it wars against the reality of God, it wars against the reality of the church. And unchecked, then it becomes restrictive in the extreme. And doesn't carry power, and will never see breakthrough. I want to say this morning, without hesitation, that this church is not a religious church. It is not calling you to religion. It is not calling you to a system. It is not calling you to somehow curl up in a ball and try harder and you might just make it. It is calling you to relationship. And if you have been somebody that's been bound by religion, had religion placed on you, then you need to be free this morning. Brothers and sisters, we watch it with a hawk eye. We won't have it. We won't have it. Number two, briefly, rejection. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 30, Jesus got up in his hometown of Nazareth. One day and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Set the captives free to bring sight to the blind, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Isaiah 61, of course. You think everybody think, oh boy, don't God. Nazareth, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Jesus. But they wanted to take him to a cliff edge and throw him off it. Rejected. And the reality is, friends, that we must forever deal with rejection. It says in Isaiah 53, prophetically, that Jesus was despised and rejected of men, but he refused to allow it to define him. I wonder if you allow rejection to define you. It comes in all sorts of contexts. Family, sadly. Friends, influences in your life. You're thick. You'll never be any good. 
You'll never pass exams. You're useless. You'll never have a good job. People believe all this stuff. And live with rejection. It can be verbal. It can be emotional. It can be intentional, but it can be unintentional. We can still be rejected. And of course, Jesus was on the end of intentional rejection. And he says he passed, he passed from them because his time had not yet come. Isn't that amazing? He passed from them because his time had not yet come. And I want to encourage you to remember this morning that rejection is a thief. And it is not permissible in this church. Here's three ways that you can push back on rejection. I'm just going to bullet point them. Number one, you can accept the truth. The truth says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that all your days are ordained in his book. Psalm 139. That's what God thinks about you. Whatever anybody else has said about you, that's what God says about you. You need to accept the truth. You need to release forgiveness. C.S. Lewis says everybody thinks forgiveness is a wonderful idea until they've got to do it. I'm encouraging you today, friends, to find a journey of God in your life to release forgiveness. I don't have have time to go there this morning, but forgiveness is not condoning wrong. Forgiveness is not saying that it didn't matter. Forgiveness is not denying that you weren't hurt. But forgiveness, friends, is releasing those people back to God for him to sort out and for you to live in what God has called you to be. And the third thing is that you need to Come to a place of fulfilling your destiny. Psalm 138 verse 8 says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. From a personal point of view, friends, there's been specific occasions in my life where people, sometimes perhaps used in a spiritual realm, have tried to frustrate the purpose of God on my life and they've used rejection to do it. And I'm still here. Was it painful on occasions? Absolutely. But it's a thief, it's a robber. It's not an occupant of the house, and we're not going there. And then, of course, we live with the truth today where people that look on at the church say, well, the church is rejectionist. It only allows certain types of people in the church. That is not true. And here's the balance of the ministry this morning. We want an absolute wide open door to arena. You've heard Christian talk about this in ministry in other times. I'm not going there this morning. But the risk of that is absolutely monumental. A wide open door. This church, friends, does not live there. All are welcome. All can come to a place of acceptance. Maybe God wants to deal with some of us because he doesn't want us to leave, to leave us in the state that we first came. That's discipleship. That's another story. The church can help you with that. But this church, friends, will never stand at the door unless it was somebody that was deliberately seeking to do something terrible to the church. This church has a wide open welcoming door to all that wish to pursue a journey with Jesus because we refuse to allow rejection to be a thief that defines us in any other way. Number three, briefly, control. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, Jesus' confrontation with the enemy in the, in the, um, in the desert. And of course, the enemy got more and more desperate. Bear in mind, this was a don't stop me now moment, right at the beginning of his ministry, if I can stop him now. 
If I could stop him before he gets momentum, if I could stop him before he starts healing some people, if I could stop him before he has some words of knowledge, then we'll wreck the plan of salvation for all history. That was what was on the line. And the enemy says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all the wealth if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus says, it is written. A rhema word, back to the enemy. He dealt with it. <clears throat> Control, friends, is an unnatural domination or expectation that sits over your life. And too many people live controlled. <clears throat> Forgive me if this sounds sort of brash this morning, but honestly, we could camp an hour at each of these things. But we've seen control nationally. What was it weird about Adolf Hitler? That millions of people followed him. It was control. Joseph Stalin. Ceausescu in Romania. The control was incredible. Nationally. What about domestically? We've got a home that we sometimes help in Hina. None of us know where it is. But it's a home for women that have literally sometimes had to run for their lives. From domestic abuse that often revolves around a controlling partner that becomes unbearable. They can't breathe. I have to say, friends, that controlling family is far more subtle and nuanced than that, and maybe we'll come back to it in a moment. And sadly, and I'd be wrong this morning to miss this, sometimes controlling the big pictures ex- exercise itself ecclesiastically. We've read about some terrible stories even in recent times across the earth, where people have exercised control of their parishioners for unscrupulous ends. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's a thief. We know that everybody wants to tar every church with the same bush. We're not going to allow that to happen, but it's wrong. It's wrong. And how do we exercise control if we're into it? Yeah, yeah the, oh, he's a control freak. It comes out, well, don't be a control freak. Stop controlling yourself and everybody else and everything around you. Well, here's here's our three things, how control works. Number one, menace. Acts 14, 17. You better stop preaching this message. Otherwise, you're going to prison. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. We still have Christians living with that menacing threat today. We are coming to close your church down. Control. And then there's manipulation. Where we arrange or manage things. This is where it gets a bit more subtle. Where we prey on people's emotions and reactions and words. And you mustn't go there. And the third thing is money. Can I have everything, Jesus? Can I have all the wealth? All I want you to do is bow down and worship me. It's a good deal. Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8. When he saw the power of the Spirit... For his own ends. So I'd like to pay for some of that. And Peter dealt with him with a great rebuff. I want to say that if you're emerging in leadership today, don't, don't ever allow anybody to say, you know what, I'm not going to put this money through the bag. But you can have it. If. If. If you'll put this ministry into action. If you'll start doing this. Can you just tell that drummer to tone it down a bit? But you know, you can. Money. And by the way, both me and him have had that on the journey of Arena Church. The answer has been no. When I first went into ministry in 1979, the first pastor I ever met from another denomination, I'll be respectful to that denomination by not mentioning it, 
The first pastor I ever became a friend to was starved out of the church because people controlled him by not paying him. He was literally routed out of the manse. I had to go back north where he lived. And then we want God to bless. It's not going to happen, friends. It's not going to happen. We must, there's only one person in control of this world, and it's the Lord. He is sovereign. And when I say I believe in the sovereignty of God, don't try and sort of pick my theology out of that. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I also believe in the free will of man. And somewhere along the line, they collide together. And I don't like straight line theology that denies one or the other. We better move on, you know. <laughs> and the final thing is offense. 1 Peter 1, 21 to 23. When Jesus was reviled or offended, he reviled not again. And the definition of offense is to take deep-seated offense when none is intended. There are more prodigals, friends, out there today rather than serving with their gift in the church over the spirit of offense than anything else I know. Well, somebody said to me this, and that pastor said that, and that person said that, and if that's the church, I'm never going to the church again. And you are ruining your life on those statements. Every one of us here have been on the end, either intentionally or unintentionally, of a remiss remark. It's life. It's humanity. It's fallenness. Are you going to really put on the line your eternal purpose and destiny on the basis of that? It's crazy. But I want to say, friends, that we are not allowing the spirit of offense to fester in the life of the church. Here's how it works. It often works over triviality out of immaturity. Pastor Colin will remember the great conventions of years ago. And there used to be a a tea between the morning, uh, sorry, the afternoon and the evening service. Bear in mind, I don't know if you remember Colin, there used to be two preachers in the afternoon and two preachers at night sometimes. And I was talking to somebody recently it was uh, Andy Orthon. And Andy Orthon was telling me about a church in Manchester that used to have a convention on Christmas Day. They didn't trust the people to behave themselves, so they had them in church all day. <laughs> and he was telling me, this is obscurity, that years ago, Reinhard Bonnke was the guest speaker at this church. Before he was famous. Incredible. But you see, here's what happened. <clears throat> As they're getting the convention tea together, Sister Jones decided she wanted the lettuce this way on the plate. Where Sister Smith thought it ought to be that way, you know. And one of them got offended. Triviality, immaturity. But then he got passed down to daughter Margaret, who passed it down to granddaughter Esther. And here we are four generations later, and these two families still don't quite get it together. And it all started at a convention tea over lettuce. That's how the enemy works. Proverbs says that an offended spirit is more unyielding than a fortified city. You ever come across somebody like that? Oh, oh. 
A four, an offended spirit is more unyielding than a fortified city. Prickly, moody. You're going towards them like this. What are they going to be like? How they, it's the offended spirit. You're not going to build a church like that. And when Jesus was offended, he refused to offend. When he was revived, he refused to take it to himself. You see, offense impairs relationships, renewal, and a reflection of how God is over your life. Don't allow it. If you've lived in offense, if you've lived there, if you've taken it to yourself, you see, offense is never given, it's taken. It's taken. I'm going to take that. It's going to be my excuse for not following God. Every time the Holy Spirit comes and challenges me, I'm going to tell him about that that happened. Give it away to the Lord. Give it away to the Lord. And be, I call people out this morning to be what God has called you to be in his purpose and plan. And so there are many churches, friends, racing around, great programs, talking about what they want in the church. And Christian and the guys are going to be talking about that in weeks to come. Discipleship, team, unity, faith, generosity, all of those things. Aspiration. Great, we're only here for a week, thank goodness. All the things, but we must deal with this. I want to tell you that the elders of this church are committed to keeping religion, control, rejection, and offense at the door. We really are. We really are. And we're committed for God to build a house here with his blueprint for us for such a time as this, that he can dwell in by his spirit. Holy Spirit, you're welcome. You're welcome to do what you want to do, to say what you want to say, to be what you want to be in this house. And so there are churches talking about the occupants of the house, but they don't realize some of them, they have been overrun by gate crashers, squatters, burglars, and thieves. And they wonder why they're making no progress. And I ask as Arena Church, as I close and I'm back to Christian this morning, to recommit to devoting our followership to Jesus, who by his spirit indwells the building called the church of God, by committing to the well-being of this house, by submitting to the eldership that carry the guardianship of the church, and are absolutely committed 100% to doing that. And so together, we bolt the door on religion, Rejection, control and offense. And we set ourselves up to be the building that God's ordained us to be, filled with his spirit. There's nothing else worth settling for. Amen.